Welcome to Great Move North. If you're just looking, just wondering, or even just about to do it, then this just might be the place to start. We meet the people who've taken a leap of faith and jumped. As they land, there's challenges, sometimes despair, often followed by smiles and silent amazement at the sights now surrounding them. When you're stranded a long way from home, you dwell on what you miss most. Alone, fearful, and living near a crime and pandemic-ridden Brazilian favela, Ali Priestley missed her partner, a new home she'd never seen, and a curved hook holding the key to a hidden passion. Ali opened up about that passion, her flight from South America, and how she began a new life in the shadow of the Three Peaks. So let's get this straight, Ali. The last 12 months have seen you in Thailand, Brazil, and the Yorkshire Dales. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Thailand was before the pandemic. Um, Brazil was smack in the middle of the pandemic. So, yeah. Um, just four weeks ago, I was still living in Sao Paulo uh, with 20 million people in the middle of Brazil. And what took you to Sao Paulo? Well, my profession is I'm an international head teacher. So that sounds a bit grand, really, but really a head teacher in international schools. Uh, and so I've worked pretty much all over the world. I was a vice principal in Abu Dhabi and then went to live on the beautiful island of Phuket in Thailand and was a head of school there. And from there, I ended up in Sao Paulo in Brazil for the past two years. Yeah. What an extraordinary story. Have you, did you train as a teacher? Yeah, I've been in education for over 20 years. Um, prior to that, I did all sorts of other things. I was actually in advertising and worked in newspapers for a bit as well. Um, but went into to teaching because my two sons were at school and I was going in to help out. And I had a complete change of life and retrained as a teacher. And then I was really, really fortunate to do a lot of work with the British Council. And so I started uh, going all over Europe uh, with Brit British Council-funded projects with other schools. So we were working with schools in Italy and Croatia and Bulgaria. Just short-term assignments? They were just short-term. Well, they were short-term visits, but the, the project would last for maybe two years. And so I would visit these countries two, three times a year. So I was travelling a lot, which was great. And then once our boys had gone through school and gone through university and drama school, um, I was free then to, to do something completely different. So decided I wanted to travel. I wanted to get claim my gap years back and do something different. So um, went out to the UAE and worked for three years in Abu Dhabi, right. um, which was brilliant. Uh, I, it was the first time I'd worked full time in an international private school. And we had children there from 70 different nationalities. Extraordinary. So that really was extraordinary. So mid-years, gap years for you? Started in my 50s. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. Phuket, how did that happen? Well, I was, I'd been in Abu Dhabi for three years, which was lovely. And the international teaching circuit is quite a small circuit, surprisingly, from people all over the world. And... Um, it was it was sort of you get the travel bug 
And I was really fortunate that whilst I was in Abu Dhabi, I trained as an international schools inspector. So I would be, I'd started to go to some other countries to, to visit their schools to do inspections. And uh, I thought, I, I just want to go live somewhere else for a bit now. Because once you hit your 50s, you, you suddenly realise that time is not forever, that you actually have to get on. You can't just go, oh, I'll do that one day. You have to go, no, I need to do it and I need to do it right now. And so because the, I wanted to live in different places, a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful position came up in Phuket to work for this, this beautiful school right on the edge of the rainforest, uh, beautiful building. It was all about, the, you know, the, the the plants that grew there and the, the building itself is is just like a garden. So then the I, you know, I applied for this the job for a head of school in, in Phuket, got the job. Love, loved living so close to the rainforest. In fact, we had a house that was right in the jungle. Uh, it was on stilts. And it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It sounds... Mm. And, and the noise, and we had over the, the back of the house, there was this amazing jungle pool, and we watched creatures come and go to the pool all day long, which was really fabulous. But it also comes with a gigantic amount of very quite nasty, creepy crawlies and snakes and okay. infestations. So after two years of living in the jungle, it was like... Oh, should we, should we go somewhere else? Should we do something else? And because I also have this imperative because, you know, like I mentioned, in your 50s, you need to get on and get yeah. things done. So I thought, oh, I want to go somewhere else as well. Before I, you know, I thought, well, I've, got, I've probably got, at that point, I've probably got 10 years left before I need to think about retiring. And this is only a couple of years ago. Uh, and then this, this opportunity came up in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And it was to work for a bigger organisation, uh, a global uh, company, which have schools in all over the world, really. And I thought, well, that would be great to start to do some collaborative work with, with people around the world. And yet again, going to a school where there was about 65, 70 nationalities of children, which is... Oh, North and South America and... Europe? Or what, where yeah, are, where the, were they from? They come from everywhere. Right. Every international school I've worked in, mm. you've got children from all over the world. And there is that true... Rep you know, you will have heard the stories that you know, children don't see colour, they don't see mm. race, they don't see nationalities, and they genuinely don't. They see a friend. And they also... What's amazing is the, the language acquisition of young children. So you will have two children who... Um, for instance, in, in Sao Paulo, the, com the language of instruction in the school is English. The common language is Portuguese. But we would get children from Korea or, uh, well, from any, any part, from, from India, anywhere. So I'd get uh, two children arrive, young children. They have no Portuguese, they have no English. One speaks Hindi. The other, no Portuguese, no English, speaks Korean. How can these children possibly start to communicate? How? But they do, because children have this wonderful non-verbal communication. So they, not only do they not see what colour you are, what your heritage is, what your culture is, they don't even see what language or hear what language you're speaking. So, so tell, me, tell me, how do they do it? How does that happen? Because, those? like, you and I are talking, we're both leaning forward because we're interested in what each other is saying. So I know that anything I'm going to say to you with mm. your body language, mm. you're going to be receptive. Uh, and as adults, we, we have to sort of learn this and, and be taught it and, and read it from a book or... 
But children are like, you know how a dog will wag his tail and come up to you and you know he's friendly? Or if he puts his ears back and bears his teeth, you're not going to say hello? And it's the same with children. They exhibit the body language that they don't understand. Show tell. Absolutely. But it's natural. And they'll start playing a game and they'll start creating something together. They'll be playing in a a pool of water or they've got all their junk modelling kit and together they'll start to construct something. And they don't need to have that verbal communication. So critically then, is it light touch teaching? How do you let that develop? Well, again, this is fascinating. Children learn language in a very different way to adults. If we're learning a foreign language, we have to... It it, it goes through our working memory and into our long-term memory and all of it. Children, they seem to absorb language very, very easily by osmosis. So they'll start to communicate in a non-verbal way. And then they start to get words. They go really quiet. It's really interesting. So you'll you'll have a few months where children just don't speak at all, um, or because they're frustrated because they when you when they speak to you they're speaking to me in Korean. I I don't have any Korean, uh, but that's they haven't got any English. They haven't got any Portuguese, and so they go quiet. But they start to absorb the language within months they start to speak again and they're speaking in English. And they're not just speaking odd words like you or I might if we're learning a new language. They're already putting sentences together and they build and build and build. But they're doing it unconsciously or subconsciously. I mean, it's something I, you know, that I, I just know from experience and it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. And the same experience in Abu Dhabi? The same in Abu Dhabi and the same in Phuket. Really? And was Phuket, because I got the impression Phuket was purely Thai children. We had a lot of Thai children. Mm. But as you probably know, Phuket, is the, their main industry is, is travel. Uh, it's where people, you, you go to Phuket to go on holiday. You don't go there to mm. do anything else. And so it's all the travel industry. So you get, we had a lot of uh, American children there. We had uh, a lot of European children there, Australians as well. Um from an Asian point of view, they tended to be Southeast Asian children. So we, we didn't get very many sort of uh, from, from the Indian continent or Pakistan, very limited there. Whereas in Abu Dhabi, we had a very high percentage of children from India, Pakistan, uh, Nepal, all of that, those places, as well as a massive amount from Europe, from all over Europe. It's interesting, this whole phenomenon of people making these changes in their lives in their 50s. There's, uh, in, in journalism, in Minecraft, there's, uh, famously, there's a woman called Lucy Kellaway who's okay. set up um, a thing called Now Teach uh, for people who've had successful careers in the city or the media or whatever and have then moved into teaches, teaching in their mid or late 50s. Yeah. Um, but that seems to have a focus of the southeast of England, London, where you do have different types of communities learning as they go along. Um, would you advocate more and more people looking at moving into teaching at that that stage of their lives? I think it's, it's or a career switch. Yeah, but, but but you know, I think career switch is the thing. It, mm. You have to when you're in your fifties, you have to do something that is going to really drive you because you know. And if you go into teaching, you understand the importance of learning and lifelong learning, and you you never stop learning and how that mm. keeps you going. Um, 
But I, I, I got into teaching in my in my thirties, and then have left teaching in my fifties to to do something completely different. And now you're teaching people in <laughs> the Yorkshire Dales, all about the joys of fabric and wool and crafts. Yeah, absolutely. So we're leapfrogging Brazil, but how did that come about? You you were in Brazil, <laughs> yeah. and then here you are. We've got yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Here you are sitting in the Yorkshire Dales. Yeah. Well, there I was in Sao Paulo and uh, my husband and I were, were were very happy. We'd arrived in Sao Paulo. We'd never been to South America. We decided this was going to be a, a wonderful adventure. And we, we, we'd already started traveling sort of in, in the mountains of Brazil, which was just extraordinary. It was like, it's like being in the Wild West. Everybody rides horses as their mode of transport and, and ties them up at hitching posts outside the bars. It's, just incredible and so we we were already doing that we'd we came back um the first christmas we'd just been there one term come back home to visit family back in the uk had christmas here and that was when we were starting to get the news from wuhan about the first cases of the pandemic you may remember and it was one of those things it was like oh well this is an asian thing this is this is not going to hit this is not going to hit the sort of the western world we're going to be okay in europe we're going to be okay in america south america it's it's very much a an asian thing so we happily left uh having visited for christmas we went back to sao paulo and started planning our next trip, which was going to be for Easter. And we'd planned to to go up to the Amazon, and we'd, we'd booked a fabulous hotel right on the edge of the Amazon. It was going to be amazing. And then we started at school, started to get information through from John Hopkins uh, University about the cases of this new strain, this 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 coronavirus. Uh, and it was starting to to really hit. Now, because I was working for a global organization at that time, we had our colleagues in China who were saying, we're having to close our schools and we are having to uh, lock down and we're not allowed to travel in the same way we were. So then it started to become real. But we were still thinking we're, we're going to be fine in South America. And then, of course... You know, as we all know, the pandemic really hit. Mm. And so by April, the the pandemic had reached all... Co- I was certainly, as far as I was concerned, all corners of the earth. It, it, would, it had gone through Europe. It had hit America and South America. And so we were then uh, not able to do any of the travelling we'd planned to do in South America. And were you scared? Very, very scared. Actually, very On your scared. Own? I was. My husband was still with me at that point. This is about April time, and we we were hearing the horror stories that were coming out of Brazil because Brazil is still a developing country. It has massive poverty. It has massive populations, density of population as well. And we were seeing the horror stories and we were hearing the horror stories and we felt very unsafe. So the school at this point was then closing as a physical school and was becoming an online school only. And so the opportunity then was to, for many of our staff, not just myself and my husband, but was to return to our home countries uh, where we felt safer and we could carry on with the online teaching. This was all completely brand new. Myself and our teachers hadn't been doing any online teaching whatsoever. So within 48 hours, the Friday night, the physical school closed. 
the Monday morning, the online school opened. And so all of us... And you're still in Sao Paulo. Yeah, I, we were still in Sao Paulo at that time. Mm. So this, this, so everybody then was online. And we returned back to the UK, went to stay. <laughs> but, but at this point, now everybody in, in the UK was terrified of COVID. So we uh, didn't have a house in the UK because we'd been travelling overseas for years. And went to stay with my son in Suffolk, but who also lived... How did that work? How did you get back well, into the UK? This, did, well, were you welcome with open arms at Heathrow? Not too bad, but, but the, the biggest shock was the first... Sao Paulo, massive, massive airport, mm. international hub. We got there and it was deserted. You know the, the departure boards, which there's boards with hundreds of flights on? There were three flights on it. The airport was absolutely deserted. Every cafe, shop closed um and it was the spookiest experience we were on a plane with a massive big long-haul flight with hardly anybody on the plane get back to i think we flew into heathrow heathrow deserted absolutely deserted uh we were terrified about getting public transport so we we got a taxi but we were terrified of the taxi this is before, you know this is the time when people were super panicky we, we went to Suffolk. Uh, my son and uh, daughter-in-law with a, with a new baby was, was scared and their, their parents lived next door in a, like an adjoining house who were really worried about us coming back from like a COVID epidemic. <laughs> and so for the first two months, uh, we well, for the first couple of weeks, we literally we lived in a caravan in the garden and a tent and then we built a cabin my other son, who, who had actually, weirdly, he'd, he'd been working in Antarctica. And so he'd come back from Antarctica. He was working with the British Antarctic Survey. So he had arrived back at my other son's house in Suffolk. Uh, so we were all there. And he was then, because then there was a lockdown. Nobody could go anywhere. Yeah. So he was trapped in Suffolk. We were trapped in Suffolk. We had nowhere to live, so he helped us build this cabin in so the garden. So let's get this straight. Which, which is scarier, the jungle, <laughs> you know, with the scary, creepy crawlies, or the uh, encampment in Suffolk? Well, well, the encampment in Suffolk was delightful because if you remember, was it last year, we had this beautiful long summer, so it was absolutely glorious. So we were wandering the lanes of Suffolk and cycling, out, swimming out of a an H.E. Bates book. It was just brilliant. And were you working? Working online, but having to use the time difference. So my dad, we would have a lovely morning in Suffolk in the sunshine. And then come lunchtime, that's when my school day started. So teaching kids from 70 countries around the world in Brazil and you're yeah, in a and I'm in, a, I'm in, a, in Suffolk. I'm in, yeah, I'm in a cabin in a garden in Suffolk teaching bizarre. children all over the world because a lot How of the bizarre. children have gone back to their home countries. Yeah, absolutely crazy. So I'm doing whole school assemblies on a, a Zoom link to all the children who all the children are all over the world as though it, this is perfectly normal. It was extraordinary, extraordinary. So that was last summer. And then I was like, well, I, we have to get, I have to get back to Brazil. I can't stay in Suffolk forever. And plus, we needed to try. You know, people started to come to terms with the pandemic. They started to understand what the transmission was like and how we can live with this the way where we have done for the past year. And so um, I went back to Sao Paulo, but my husband, who's a little bit older than me, um, was in the at-risk group. So 
he de- well we both decided that he would stay in the UK and I would return to Sao Paulo on my own that was last August that was a year ago so I went back to Sao Paulo and uh, it was pretty much in lockdown you know everybody wore masks we had curfews we had things that school still closed school then was allowed to open to 30% of the pupils this was the the Sao Paulo municipality who decided so we were open to 30% of the pupils and they uh, that kept changing because they were all in bubbles. So as soon as one of the bubbles had a COVID case, it wiped the whole year group out. So they were fully online for two weeks before they could come back. Mm. This was the situation for the whole of last year. So, so we were in a hybrid situation. We had some children taught online, some children taught in school. Our teachers were extraordinary at being able to adapt their teaching to cover this. Who thought, you know, you'd be teaching maybe 10 children in your classroom because you had to maintain social distancing, hence the 30%. You would have your laptop set up with a camera teaching the children who were either that was their day not to come into school or they were in isolation or they were in their home countries. So this was happening every day. And isolation for you and your partner, he's on the other side of the world. Yeah. You're learning new skills, improving your skill set with all this technology around you. But it must have been hugely challenging. It was horrible. It was horrible. How long did you put up with it for? A year. Best part of a year. And because... I was terrified of catching it. You know, in your 50s, you're not in, you know, you you, just, you start to become in the vulnerable group. The vaccines were not available at all in Brazil. Still, it's very few and far between. And massive population density. So I lived in a, a really nice neighbourhood in Sao Paulo. But quarter of a mile down the road, there is a huge favela mm. where the sanitation is minimal, where the people are living in huge density and huge poverty and cannot show any social distancing at all. Uh, and then you've got the other aspect. So if you're in a favela, it's, it is really bad. But then there is a class under the favela people who are living nowhere. They're living on the streets and they live everywhere on the streets. So tell me, how was this idea, was this idea cooking He's in the shop. He's in the UK. <laughs> You're in that surroundings mm. you've just described. Mm. How did we get to the point where we're sitting here in Craftopia underneath the three peaks? I know. It's even more bonkers. So there I am every day welcoming children into school. And uh, the kidnap risk for wealthy children is really high. So I would have children arrive in school with armed bodyguards in bulletproof cars. Uh, Across the road, there'd be a family living on the streets in cardboard boxes. On a daily basis, this really affects you deeply. Extraordinary, yeah. Deeply. Plus, I'm living with a pandemic. My, My husband and family are all in the UK. I'm alone in Sao Paulo. I don't go anywhere. I go to school and I go home and I go to the shops a couple of times a week because I'm terrified of catching it. So, And you'd start to live with this, but it does bring you down. So... What do we do? We start. I've been a massive crocheter for years and have crocheted blankets and things for my families while I've been away because crocheting, when you're making something, the person you're making it for is with you. So if I'm sitting in Abu Dhabi, 
crocheting a blanket for my son. My son is with me in my heart as I'm making it. And so while I was in Sao Paulo, I'm crocheting like mad because when I'm making things, making a cardigan for my darling granddaughter, she feels, it feels like What's she's she with me. She's called Teddy. Short for, she's Theodora, but we call her Teddy. She's two years old. Adorable. So I'm, I'm crocheting for her, I'm crocheting for my sons, I'm crocheting for my husband. And they're all with me in, in spirit. They're in my heart because I'm making these things. Yet you've got outside the window, you've got this extraordinary dichotomy I've, of bulletproof cards, wealthy kids mm. and people living in cardboard boxes. Yeah. Inner turmoil. Yeah. And I'm looking over the cityscape of Sao Paulo, which is hundreds of miles of, of skyscrapers. And it's just all you see is concrete. And in my heart, I'm either in the Suffolk countryside or in, I'm in the Yorkshire Dales crocheting for my family. And what's in your head? So in my head is I, I have to stop doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I can't stay here any longer. It's, it's breaking my heart. And so I, I'm, I wasn't a massive Instagram fan. So I, I started to start, look, you know, there's some great designers of, of yarn products on Instagram. So I start scrolling through. This is in April of this year. And I'm scrolling through and I see this, this, this lady called Amanda Bloom and she has a, a company called The Little Box of Crochet. And I start liking some of her things and, and just on a, it was a Thursday afternoon, I see this ad, she's, this post she puts about she's selling her little shop, her, her wool and craft shop in the Yorkshire Dales. Uh, I didn't know it was the Yorkshire Dales then. I didn't know where in England it was. And I thought, oh, how lovely. Sent my husband a quick message. Oh, shall we buy a wool shop in the Yorkshire Dales? Literally joking pretty mm. much at this point. Sent it off and he said, of course, whatever you want to do, bless him. And then I start just that day, that Thursday afternoon, looking a little bit deeper, send Amanda a message and say, do you know, I'm quite interested. I've never run a shop in my life, but I love crochet. I'm in Sao Paulo in Brazil. <laughs> if I buy your shop, will you help me? for the first few weeks just to, to find out what I'm doing. She sends me a reply and says, yes, of course I will. Friday, I'm going, do you know what? I'm going to buy your shop. On the Saturday, I ask my husband and my, my son, one of my sons, would you mind taking a drive to the Yorkshire Dales to go look at this shop and meet this lady called Amanda Bloom? So they do that on the Saturday morning, and it's a rainy Saturday. They text me back on Saturday afternoon saying... The shop is fabulous. It's absolutely you. And my uh, my son actually said, Mum, it's like looking inside your head, looking inside that shop. At which point I sent Amanda a message and said, I want to buy your shop. And, started, and then bought the shop the following week. You'd actually made the decision the way you just described that on the Thursday afternoon when you first saw it. Pretty much. In your heart. Yeah, in my heart I had. Mm. And it was... I do believe that every once in a while um, you get an opportunity. There's something just pops out of nowhere and just drops into your into your life for, from wherever. I, I don't know, but it just pops into your life. And but two have popped into your life because we do the rewind and you started this extraordinary journey into teaching. Yeah. Which put you on a plane to Abu Dhabi, wherever, yeah. all the places that we've just described. So you've had two big changes. Oh, yeah, definitely two big changes in the last 20 years, going into teaching and then now leaving teaching and and running this 
More to come, or is that it? Oh, no, I think this is just the start. Yeah, and it's what I do, or what we do here now with the shop. You know, it's it's already... It already has its own momentum. Um, the you know with with social media, it's so wonderful and so fast to get a message out there, and you you get the message out, and people are asking us all the time, "Are you going to do classes? Are you going to teach this? Are you going to?" Do that? And of course, I am absolutely going to do that, and I'm going to teach children crafts as well. So because of so my my background in being an educator, I'm yeah, I'm going to use that and and make sure that is part and parcel of what we do. And this is home now, literally above the shop? Literally above the shop, in the most beautiful... This building we're sitting in is, is 1530, 1540. It's an ancient Dales village house. Upstairs, it's just open beams, it's beautiful, everything. No, there isn't a straight line in the place. Describe the day. How did you oh, start? Oh, my day. Well, it's beautiful. So we get up pretty early... 6am in the morning, we have a cup of coffee. We walk out, we, we will go walk out in the dales for about an hour. As you know, there are the most beautiful caves and, and the rock form, the limestone caves here, create beautiful rivers and, and deep pools in the rivers. So we go wild water swimming every morning as well. Come back here, have another cup of coffee. It's still only about 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, start thinking about the day in the shop open the shop and talk to the most amazing people who are either here on holiday or they live in the Dales. Or, or interestingly, I had a lady phone me last night from Wales who'd seen an Instagram post and loved some of the wool, sent some wool off to her. Yeah, it's... It, I couldn't imagine a more different place than where I am now in this beautiful village in the Yorkshire Dales to a megapolis of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And within a month, I've lived in both. It's extraordinary. Remarkable. <laughs> Ali Priestley, thank you very much. Thank you.